aphorism 61 to 68 of Book 1 of The New Organon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Alan Shaw. The New Organon by Francis Bacon. Translated by James Spedding, Robert Leslie Ellis, and Douglas Denon Heath. Aphorism 61 to 68 of Book 1. Aphorism 61. But the idols of the theater are not innate, nor do they steal into the understanding secretly, but are plainly impressed and received into the mind from the playbooks of philosophical systems, and the perverted rules of demonstration. To attempt refutations in this case would be merely inconsistent with what I have already said, for since we agree neither upon principles nor upon demonstrations, there is no place for argument. And this is so far well, inasmuch as it leaves the honor of the ancients untouched, for they are nowise disparaged, the question between them and me being only as to the way. For as the saying is, the lame man who keeps the right road outstrips the runner who takes a wrong one. Nay, it is obvious that when a man runs the wrong way, the more active and swift he is, the further he will go astray. But the course I propose for the discovery of sciences is such as leaves but little to the acuteness and strength of wits but places all wits and understandings nearly on a level. For as in the drawing of a straight line or a perfect circle, much depends on the steadiness and practice of the hand, if it be done by aim of hand only, but if with the aid of rule or compass little or nothing. So is it exactly with my plan. But though particular confutations would be of no avail, yet touching the sects and general divisions of such systems, I must say something, something also touching the external signs which show that they are unsound, and finally something touching the causes of such great infelicity and of such lasting and general agreement and error, that so the access to truth may be made less difficult, and the human understanding may the more willingly submit to its purgation and dismiss its idols. Aphorism 62. Idols of the theater, or of systems, are many, and there can be and perhaps will be yet many more. For were it not that now for many ages men's minds have been busied with religion and theology, and were it not that civil governments, especially monarchies, have been averse to such novelties, even in matters speculative, so that men labor therein to the peril and harming of their fortunes, not only unrewarded but exposed also to contempt and envy, doubtless there would have arisen many other philosophical sects like those which in great variety flourished once among the Greeks. For as on the phenomena of the heavens many hypotheses may be constructed, so likewise, and more also, many various dogmas may be set up and established on the phenomena of philosophy. And in the plays of this philosophical theater, you may observe the same thing which is found in the theater of the poets, that stories invented for the stage are more compact and elegant, and more as one would wish them to be than true stories out of history. In general, however, there is taken from the material of philosophy either a great deal out of a few things, or a very little out of many things, so that on both sides philosophy is based on too narrow a foundation of experiment and natural history, and decides on the authority of too few cases. For the rational school of philosophers snatches from experience a variety of common instances, neither duly ascertained nor diligently examined and weighed, and leaves all the rest to meditation and agitation of wit. There is also another class of philosophers who, having bestowed much diligent and careful labor on a few experiments, have thence made bold to educe and construct systems, resting all other facts in a strange fashion to conformity therewith. And there is yet a third class, consisting of those who out of faith and veneration mix their philosophy with theology and traditions, among whom the vanity of some has gone so far aside as to seek the origin of sciences among spirits and genii, 
so that this parent stock of errors, this false philosophy, is of three kinds, the sophistical, the empirical, and the superstitious. Aphorism 63. The most conspicuous example of the first class was Aristotle, who corrupted natural philosophy by his logic, fashioning the world out of categories, assigning to the human soul the noblest of substances, a genus from words of the second intention. Doing the business of density and rarity, which is to make bodies of greater or less dimensions, that is, occupy greater or less spaces, by the frigid distinction of act and power. Asserting that single bodies have each a single and proper motion, and that if they participate in any other, then this results from an external cause, and imposing countless other arbitrary restrictions on the nature of things. Being always more solicitous to provide an answer to the question, and affirm something positive in words, than about the inner truth of things a failing best shown when his philosophy is compared with other systems of note among the Greeks. For the homoeomera of Anaxagoras, the atoms of Leucippus and Democritus, the heaven and earth of Parmenides, the strife and friendship of Empedocles, Heraclitus' doctrine how bodies are resolved into the indifferent nature of fire and remolded into solids, have all of them some taste of the natural philosopher, some savor of the nature of things, and experience, and bodies, Whereas in the physics of Aristotle you hear hardly anything but the words of logic, which in his metaphysics also, under a more imposing name, and more forsooth as a realist than a nominalist, he is handled over again. Nor let any weight be given to the fact that in his books on animals and his problems and other of his treatises there is frequent dealing with experiments. For he had come to his conclusion before. He did not consult experience as he should have done for the purpose of framing his decisions and axioms. But having first determined the question according to his will, he then resorts to experience, and bending her into conformity with his placets, leads her about like a captive in a procession. So that even on this count he is more guilty than his modern followers, the schoolmen, who have abandoned experience altogether. Aphorism 64 But the empirical school of philosophy gives birth to dogmas more deformed and monstrous than the sophistical or rational school. For it has its foundations not in the light of common notions, which, though it be a faint and superficial light, is yet in a manner universal and has reference to many things, but in the narrowness and darkness of a few experiments. To those, therefore, who are daily busied with these experiments and have infected their imagination with them, such a philosophy seems probable and all but certain, to all men else incredible and vain. Of this there is a notable instance in the alchemists and their dogmas, though it is hardly to be found elsewhere in these times, except perhaps in the philosophy of Gilbert. Nevertheless, with regard to philosophies of this kind, there is one caution not to be omitted. For I foresee that if ever men are roused by my admonitions to betake themselves seriously to experiment and bid farewell to sophistical doctrines, then indeed through the premature hurry of the understanding to leap or fly to universals and principles of things, great danger may be apprehended from philosophies of this kind, against which evil we ought even now to prepare. Aphorism 65 but the corruption of philosophy by superstition and an admixture of theology is far more widely spread, and does the greatest harm, whether to entire systems or to their parts. For the human understanding is obnoxious to the influence of the imagination no less than to the influence of common notions. For the contentious and sophistical kind of philosophy ensnares the understanding, but this kind, being fanciful and tumid and half-poetical, misleads it more by flattery. For there is in man an ambition of the understanding no less than of the will, especially in high and lofty spirits. Of this kind we have among the Greeks a striking example in Pythagoras, though he united it with a coarser and more cumbrous superstition. Another in Plato and his school, more dangerous and subtle, 
It shows itself likewise in parts of other philosophies, in the introduction of abstract forms, in final causes, in first causes, with the omission in most cases of causes intermediate, and the like. Upon this point the greatest caution should be used, for nothing is so mischievous as the apotheosis of error, and it is a very plague of the understanding for vanity to become the object of veneration. Yet in this vanity some of the moderns have, with extreme levity, indulged so far as to attempt to found a system of natural philosophy on the first chapter of Genesis, on the book of Job, and other parts of the sacred writings, seeking for the dead among the living, which also makes the inhibition and repression of it the more important, because from this unwholesome mixture of things human and divine there arises not only a fantastic philosophy, but also a heretical religion. Very meet it is, therefore, that we be sober-minded, and give to faith that only which is faith's. Aphorism 66. So much, then, for the mischievous authorities of systems, which are founded either on common notions, or on a few experiments, or on superstition. It remains to speak of the faulty subject matter of contemplations, especially in natural philosophy. Now the human understanding is infected by the sight of what takes place in the mechanical arts, in which the alteration of bodies proceeds chiefly by composition or separation, and so imagines that something similar goes on in the universal nature of things. From this source has flowed the fiction of elements, and of their concourse for the formation of natural bodies. Again, when man contemplates nature working freely, he meets with different species of things, of animals, of plants, of minerals whence he readily passes into the opinion that there are in nature certain primary forms, which nature intends to educe, and that the remaining variety proceeds from hindrances and aberrations of nature in the fulfillment of her work, or from the collision of different species and the transplanting of one into another. To the first of these speculations we owe our primary qualities of the elements, to the other our occult properties and specific virtues, and both of them belong to those empty compendia of thought wherein the mind rests, and whereby it is diverted from more solid pursuits. It is to better purpose that the physicians bestow their labor on the secondary qualities of matter, and the operations of attraction, repulsion, attenuation, conspissation, dilatation, astriction, dissipation, maturation, and the like. And were it not that by those two compendia which I have mentioned, elementary qualities, to wit, and specific virtues, they corrupted their correct observations in these other matters, either reducing them to first qualities and their subtle and incommensurable mixtures, or not following them out with greater and more diligent observations to third and fourth qualities, but breaking off the scrutiny prematurely, they would have made much greater progress. Nor are powers of this kind, I do not say the same but similar, to be sought for only in the medicines of the human body, but also in the changes of all other bodies. But it is a far greater evil that they make the quiescent principles wherefrom, and not the moving principles whereby, things are produced, the object of their contemplation and inquiry. For the former tend to discourse, the latter to works. Nor is there any value in those vulgar distinctions of motion which are observed in the received system of natural philosophy, as generation, corruption, augmentation, diminution, alteration, and local motion. What they mean, no doubt, is this. If a body in other respects not changed, be moved from its place, this is local motion. If without change of place or essence it be changed in quality, this is alteration. If by reason of the change the mass and quantity of the body do not remain the same, this is augmentation or diminution. If they be changed to such a degree that they change their very essence and substance and turn to something else, this is generation and corruption. 
But all this is merely popular and does not at all go deep into nature, for these are only measures and limits, not kinds of motion. What they intimate is how far, not by what means or from what source. For they do not suggest anything with regard either to the desires of bodies or to the development of their parts. It is only when that motion presents the thing grossly and palpably to the sense as different from what it was that they begin to mark the division. Even when they wish to suggest something with regard to the causes of motion, and to establish a division with reference to them, they introduce with the greatest negligence a distinction between motion natural and violent, a distinction which is itself drawn entirely from a vulgar notion, since all violent motion is also in fact natural, the external efficient simply setting nature working otherwise than it was before. But if, leaving all this, anyone shall observe, for instance, that there is in bodies a desire of mutual contact, so as not to suffer the unity of nature to be quite separated or broken, in a vacuum thus made, or if any one say that there is in bodies a desire of resuming their natural dimensions or tension, so that if compressed within or extended beyond them, they immediately strive to recover themselves and fall back to their old volume and extent, or if any one say that there is in bodies a desire of congregating toward masses of kindred nature, of dense bodies, for instance, toward the globe of the earth, of thin and rare bodies toward the compass of the sky, all these and the like are truly physical kinds of motion, but those others are entirely logical and scholastic, as is abundantly manifest from this comparison. Nor again is it a lesser evil that in their philosophies and contemplations their labor is spent in investigating and handling the first principles of things and the highest generalities of nature, whereas utility and the means of working result entirely from things intermediate. Hence it is that men cease not from abstracting nature till they come to potential and uninformed matter, nor on the other hand from dissecting nature till they reach the atom, things which, even if true, can do but little for the welfare of mankind. Aphorism 67. A caution must also be given to the understanding against the intemperance which systems of philosophy manifest in giving or withholding assent, because intemperance of this kind seems to establish idols, and in some sort to perpetuate them leaving no way open to reach and dislodge them. This excess is of two kinds, the first being manifest in those who are ready in deciding, and render science as dogmatic and magisterial, the other in those who deny that we can know anything, and so introduce a wandering kind of inquiry that leads to nothing, of which kinds the former subdues, the latter weakens the understanding. For the philosophy of Aristotle, after having by hostile confutations destroyed all the rest, as the Ottomans serve their brothers, has laid down the law on all points, which done he proceeds himself to raise new questions of his own suggestion, and dispose of them likewise, so that nothing may remain that is not certain and decided, a practice which holds and is in use among his successors. The school of Plato, on the other hand, introduced the catalepsia, at first in jest and irony, and in disdain of the older sophists, Protagoras, Hippias, and the rest, who are of nothing else so much ashamed as of seeming to doubt about anything. But the new academy made a dogma of it, and held it as a tenet. And though theirs is a fairer-seeming way than arbitrary decisions, since they say that they by no means destroy all investigation, like Pyrrho and his refrainers, but allow of some things to be followed as probable, though of none to be maintained as true, yet still, when the human mind has once despaired of finding truth, its interest in all things grows fainter. And the result is that men turn aside to pleasant disputations and discourses, and roam as it were from object to object, rather than keep on a course of severe inquisition. But, as I said at the beginning, and am ever urging, 
The human senses and understanding, weak as they are, are not to be deprived of their authority, but to be supplied with helps. Aphorism 68. So much concerning the several classes of idols and their equipage, all of which must be renounced and put away with a fixed and solemn determination, and the understanding thoroughly freed and cleansed. The entrance into the kingdom of man, founded on the sciences, being not much other than the entrance into the kingdom of heaven, whereinto none may enter except as a little child. End of Aphorism 61-68 to 68 of Book 1 Recording by Alan Shaw